Guys, I'm, I'm so glad to be uh, here with you tonight. Uh, as I have watched uh, Dayton over not just this week, but even the week before with the, the rally downtown and the protests and just love beating hate uh, in this town the last couple weeks, uh, I've just been really proud um, to watch Dayton love each other. And uh, especially this week, I've been thinking a lot about, I don't know if you know uh, the life of Dorothy Day, uh, but she's worth a good Wikipedia search. Uh, she was a woman who spent her entire life uh, serving the under-resourced in New York. Um, for the Catholic workers, she basically invented new ways to help people uh, who were trapped in poverty. And the reason that she spent her whole life doing that is because when she was a little girl around eight years old uh, in the city where she lived, I think it was in San Francisco, there was a big earthquake, and she watched her neighbors become their very best selves. And she decided that, um, why not, why don't we just do this? Like, like, like all the time. Why don't we just love each other all the time? And so she did that with her life and uh, with uh, everybody that she met. She pulled them into that work and invited them into that. And so one of the things I've been just watching is just hoping that some of us are watching and trying to figure out how can we just, how can we just live storm or no storm uh, like we love our neighbors. Uh, and so I've, I've, I've been watching the stories uh, come out of, of us doing that well and I hope it, hope it continues until we are rebuilt uh, we are in this series, like Levi said, on, on text messaging, right? Because we have these books in the Bible that are super short, uh, not quite as short as text messages, although if your mom texts, then you know uh, that they can get longer. Uh, one thing that I kind of want to just start uh, by talking about this book uh, is to talk about how important context is uh, when we open up Scripture. Uh, one thing that I say when I teach classes on the Bible is that every time you open up the Bible, uh, you should do the movies, the movie uh, trailer voice guy. You should say, in a world where, right? And so you have to kind of figure out what the world was like uh, in the world of these letters. And so just to prove my point a little bit about how important context is, uh, I just wanted to share with you some text messages that I've sent over the last couple weeks without any context, Okay. So you get it. I'm just going to tell you what the text said, but not why. Um, one text that I sent was to Saul Gomez on the staff here. And it wasn't words, uh, but I sent him uh, a GIF or GIF, however you follow in that crucial debate. Uh, I sent him a GIF of a raccoon on a bicycle. Uh, and he, he knows why, right? But I'm not telling you because I'm trying to pr prove a point. Um, <clears throat> one text that I sent this week said, um, I've got a snake idea that will work great around my neck. I'm not going to tell you what that means. Uh, one text that I sent uh, that was more serious uh, was, I wish I knew how to make casseroles uh, for you. That's something that I sent somebody this week. Uh, I sent uh, several people a YouTube link uh, to the disco song Flashlight. Uh, I don't even know if they understood why I did that, uh, but I totally understood why I sent them that. Uh, one thing that I sent to people, um, <laughs> I was in a meeting this week, and I sent somebody a text that said, I should have drank at lunch. <laughs> you ever have a meeting like that? Um, I feel like I can tell you that because last week, Charlie had a naked lady on his shoes. <laughs> Just further proof that context is key. Because um, now if you don't know why I said that, you'll have to go back and figure that one out. Um, I sent several people a text message this week in different contexts um, that just says the hamster is key. Uh, that's, you should think that's funny. Uh, that's a text that I sent to several people. Uh, if you can figure out why I might have sent a text to several people that said, the hamster is key, 
let me know and I'll donate money on your behalf to tornado relief. Um, it's not that big of a mystery, but it is a fun one. So there you go. I think I've made my, hopefully I've made my point. Context is key. When we just read words sometimes and we don't know the world that the text live in, sometimes they don't make sense to us. And so before we get into this letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, we need to understand a little bit of the context. Uh, and it's important for us to always remember that the letters of Scripture are rooted in real-life communities and in real-life relationships. And that is particularly true in this letter from Paul to Philemon. Now, just to introduce us to all the players in this story, you may know Paul. He writes a lot of letters. He's pretty famous for it. Uh, he's an apostle of the church. He goes around all over the Holy Roman Empire, the ancient Roman Empire, planting churches and giving speeches and defending the gospel and telling people who don't know the story of Jesus. He tells them the story of Jesus and how he lived and died and lived again, and he makes a whole life out of it. So you need to know about Paul. You also need to know he had a friend named Philemon who was a man of means. Uh, he's a man who had a lot of money, and somehow they know each other. And so Paul is writing a letter to Philemon. And he's writing this letter to Philemon on behalf of a friend of his that he met while he was in prison for the gospel. Uh, Paul would often get arrested for um, telling the story of Jesus because the story of Jesus is disruptive in, a, in an empire uh, that is run on slavery. The story of Jesus is disruptive and it'll get you put in prison. And during one of his prison terms, Paul meets a man named Onesimus. Now, to introduce you to Onesimus, Onesimus had been a slave. He had been a slave of Philemon, and Onesimus had run away. He had, he had sought his freedom, and instead he found Paul. Uh, he finds Paul. Paul tells Onesimus the story of Jesus and how he lived. He died, and he lived again, how he was God up close. And that story compels Onesimus uh, to join Paul in the work of planting churches and telling the gospel even when it's disruptive. And so Paul decides to send a letter to his pal Philemon, asking his friend, pleading with him to free Onesimus, to grant him his freedom so that he doesn't have to carry uh, the, the shame or the fear of being found out as a runaway slave. Now, because we want to understand the world, it's important for us to, to just talk for a while about slavery. So take a breath. Slavery was a giant part of the Greco-Roman world. Uh, it's estimated that at one time one in five people were slaves. Uh, there were so many slaves that at one point the, the government had tried to have this debate. Should we just m make slaves all wear the same clothes? Um, should we just make them wear a uniform so that everybody can know who's a slave and who's free so that your status is like on your being all the time so it's literally you are what you wear slave or free and they're trying to figure out should we make them do that and it gets shot down by the government and the whole reason they decide not to is because they're afraid of what will happen if the slaves figure out just how many of them there are you just got to sit with that for a minute right that says something about being people good and bad now there are ways that the slavery of the ancient world uh, is similar, maybe, uh, to the slavery that we might be more familiar with that we learn about in American history. There are some ways that it was kind of the same. One way that it was kind of the same uh, is that slaves had no legal rights. Uh, they were just considered property. 
non-human entities. Uh, Aristotle called them living tools. And that's similar, if you know your American history, to how people um, largely brought from Africa by European and American slave owners were treated as property, as living tools. So that is the same. But one thing that's different uh, about the Roman Empire's system of slavery um, is that there were a lot of different ways into it. So it wasn't just somebody like capturing a group of people, making them slaves. There was a lot of ways that you could end up as a slave. One of them is you could be a prisoner of war and just be forced into servitude to somebody who had more money and more means than you. Uh, a lot of it was tied into financial reasons. So your family, if they lacked resources or money, they could just sell you into slavery to pay off their land or their debt or to buy groceries for that week. If they decided that it was more valuable to them to have the money than to have you, they could sell you into slavery. If you were born into a family or into a community that just did not have a lot of money flowing through it, slavery was often your only option. So this is just sort of uh, a turbo employment, right? It is, it's an indentured servitude. The other way that it's different is not just the, all the ways into slavery in their world, but that there was actually a way out. Uh, slaves were given a very minimal wage so that if you managed to go your whole life without ever buying clothes or food or transportation, you could save up and possibly buy yourself out of slavery. So there are ways that it's the same as what we know in America and what uh, was perpetrated here, and there are ways that it's different. Now, it's important for us to just sort of acknowledge that in the world of the Bible, slavery uh, very often is just, it's just this gross reality of what happens when humans uh, are in the same place together. Uh, slavery shows up way back here in the story. You might remember the people of God become slaves to Egypt, to another empire, uh, and they um, eventually they're freed by God, sort of using Moses and all the people around Moses uh, to free the people of God. Slavery is never God's plan when it shows up. It is always a tool of the empire meant to oppress people. It is always evil. It is never God's plan. Uh, and in the Exodus story, they end up being freed by the hand of God. But by the time we get to the New Testament, the world that makes these letters and that creates these stories, slavery is just a way of life. It is the way that the empire stays afloat. Uh, slaves are fulfilling civil service. Uh, they work in agriculture. They work in industry. They are domestic workers. It is just a part of life. And Paul himself, because it is just a fact of life and because these are real letters rooted in real relationships and real communities, Paul himself references slavery a lot in his work. He, in fact, identifies himself as a slave to the gospel. He describes himself as being indebted to it, in a way, as being chained to it, and he calls himself a literal slave of the gospel. Paul just accepts that this is a part of the way the world works, but it is not the way that God wants the world to work. So there are times when Paul lets his uh, mouth get away from him to describe a world without slavery. Uh, in Galatians, he just goes on about this. He says, in Christ, there should never be slave or free. There should never be a status like that. That should not be a thing. And then he goes on to use slavery as a metaphor of what it is to be trapped and chained to sin. And he says that God is for freedom. And he paints this ideal picture where we do not oppress each other and we do not treat each other as living tools. Now, Paul also has letters because these are real 
situations, in real, ch real churches, real communities, real cities, where he tells slaves, it will go better for you if you obey your masters. And that's a thing that they would expect a person writing letters to say. But then Paul does something subversive. He says, masters, you should be kind to your slaves. And nobody had ever said that in the world. Paul's the first person to say that. Now I tell you all this because maybe you know this and maybe you don't. Context is key. And for years in America, in the country, and in the church, the Bible was used to justify slavery. The, the words were taken out of context. They were abused. It was, it was damaging and it was destructive. And so when we meet people who talk about the Bible being used against them or against the people they belong to, we talk about people who find the Bible to be painful, it's because of things like that, where these words are abused, taken out of context. Um, I got a book by one of my <coughs> favorite writers not too long ago, and I'm, I had it all set up that I was going to go to my favorite coffee shop and read my, one of my favorite writers, and I was so excited, and I opened up her brand new book, and like the first chapter... It was a deep dive into the prayer journals of American slave owners. And uh, the coffee could not be good enough to erase the pain of reading this book. It was, it was so dark and so uh, damaging. Honestly, I wanted to like quote from it, but it's so cruel uh, that I just couldn't even bring myself to read some of it out loud. Just to give you a sample of it, again, these are Christian, uh, mostly women, because they would, they would go into the kitchen, abuse their slaves, and then go write in their prayer journal. Uh, and several times they would write stuff uh, about how they would pray for God to change the attitude of their slaves, to make life easier for them. And they would pray oftentimes for their own soul that they would find just the right of punishment to not make them hard, but to keep them soft. And they would often thank God for their slaves, for this gift, this living tool that was theirs to make. So I just want to say, as we look at this short little letter, this is loaded. And that if we as Christians in America, particularly me as a white Christian in America, if we don't acknowledge that there's been damage done, we're missing the point, right? We have to at least say that talking about slavery, um, it's a difficult thing. And we also want to just understand this ourselves. Uh, because what Paul is doing in Philemon is, again, he looks at the world and he sees something so much less than what the kingdom of God could be. And he's trying to figure out how do we look at a less than world and make it more than, right? So we want to read Paul in context. We want to read what he's really trying to do. He looks at the world and he knows one out of five people are slaves. It is a part of the system. It fuels our entire economy. It's why we have good roads. It's why we have stability. He knows that it's why they have power. It's why he can roam freely about the world. I didn't mean to do that because he lives in Rome. And that's funny to me only. Um, he, he roams around the world. I did it again. Uh, he goes all over the world. And he does all these beautiful things. And part of why he's able to do that is a, a system built on the oppression of people who don't have resources. But in this book, what Paul is doing is not just about slavery. What he's doing is giving a roadmap to us. When you look at a world and it is filled with problems, when you look at North Dayton and it just seems like it cannot be uh, redone, it can't be rebuilt, it, you're just, the world is just dark and disappointing and not what God made it to be. What do you do? How can you be 
Houston. This is what it says in Philemon. Something you should know about this is that uh, Onesimus himself, the former slave who ran away from Philemon, would have been carrying the letter. So as Philemon is reading this letter, Onesimus is standing there in the flesh. This is what Paul writes. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Appia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Uh, I just want us to capture that one thing that Paul's doing right here, uh, he's CCing the church. You ever send an email like that? I, I want somebody else to know that you're supposed to take care of this, right? It's a little tiny act of aggression to CC a lot of people on an email to make sure that the person is accountable for it. Paul CCs the whole church. Dear Philemon and everybody else, he gets into it. He, he does a little prayer. That's what he does in his letters. And then in verse 7, he just starts doing some magic stuff. He says, I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love. I don't know Paul's tone here, I should say. So I can't tell if he's being sarcastic uh, or passive-aggressive or genuine. I, I like to think genuine. I also sort of like passive-aggressive. Uh, he says, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. Down in verse 10, he gets into the business of it regarding, fills in the subject line. I am appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. Now Paul is a smarty. Name Onesimus means useful. Paul is saying, this guy used to not live up to his name. He was less than. Now he's more than. I am sending him that is my own heart back to you. He is not a living tool. He is a beating heart. Even more than that, he is a heart that is connected to my heart. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place. This is good. Uh, he's saying, you should be out here in the fields with me. But you're at home doing comfortable business-like things. He took the place that you maybe should have been in during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. You ever have a, you ever have a parent or teacher tell you, you'll do the right thing. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while. That's very generous language. Uh, he ran away from you um, because you treated him like a tool. So that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you in the flesh and in the Lord. If you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's wronged you in any way, owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. Paul didn't often write his own letters. He would hire a guy because uh, he has bad eyesight, and also letter writing is expensive, uh, and you would hire a professional to use the parchment well. Paul says, this is important enough to me. I'm, I'm holding this, this pen in my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about your owing me even your own self, which is a way of saying you owe me your own self. 
right? I'm not going to mention what I got you last Christmas. You know. One more thing, Paul says. Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. If this was a text message, Paul would finish, BT dubs, I'm OM dubs. By the way, I'm on my way. Now, I, uh, I, I, I love this letter. But I have to tell you, what I wish this letter said is abolish slavery. I, I wish it just said that. But Paul knows that this is, he lives in a real world, a real empire with real systems at play. Philemon has real accounts wrapped up in his employees. And so Paul is trying to figure out, in a world that is not ideal, in a world that is less than, how can we make each other be more than? So I want us to just look really closely at a few things that Paul does. Because I, I would imagine that maybe the details are not the same. I, I hope the details are not the same. But all day long, every day, we are faced with a world that is probably less than the world we imagine. We are faced with things that are discouraging. And we don't know, how do we tackle this thing that feels giant? How do we make it? How do we get our own hands on it or around it? How do we, how can we be useful? So here's some ways we could be useful. We use Paul's letter as a map. The first thing that Paul does is he, he kind of asks this question, how can I play a role up close? If I can't make the entire government change with my pen, what can I do? He looks for the role that he can play up close and he makes it incredibly personal. I want us to just see, I don't know if you saw this, uh, it's been in the news and going around the internet the last couple weeks, but a painter uh, in Washington painted a mural of Harriet Tubman. And uh, then a journalist was walking by at just the right moment and was able to capture this. I don't know if we can pull that up. Uh, just to remind us about Harriet Tubman, um, she took on, she eventually was called Moses she was that good at freeing people. And she herself was a runaway slave who once she found freedom, once she broke through a wall, decided that she had to bring as many people as she could through the wall with her. And this little girl saw that and just wanted to, to hold her hand, right? Wanted to join her in the work. Saw this as an invitation. Do something. Uh, this week, I'm wearing my, my bog shirt because my friends Jason, who run bog, who's a partner of Southbrook and who are doing stuff in cahoots with them in this uh, relief and recovery and rebuilding. Uh, they've been down in North Eaton a bunch this week in the Northridge neighborhood. And they were down there a couple days ago and Jason Johnston was there with his son, Connor. Connor's preschooler. And uh, the, the news team was interviewing Jason about what people could do, how they could help. And then they threw it to Connor, the preschooler, and said, what do you wish everybody in the world, what would you give them if you could give them something? And Connor said love, which is already kind of precious, right? And then he said, and water. What can you do up close? I would encourage you, if you can find any way to get your hands dirty this month. They're going to be gone. Bog's going to be gone every Monday. I know Southbrook's going to stay in the fight. There's going to be all kinds of opportunities to 
Hopefully you'll write, write the checks and the money. He'll bring in the donations. That stuff's all great. But if you can get personal, if you can learn the names of the people who have lost things, when there's something that seems overwhelming, the best thing we can do is get up close and personal. Tim Snyder is a Holocaust expert who says that the only way to really fight against tyranny, the only way things like the Holocaust can't happen again is if we learn our neighbor's names. Look for the role that you can play up close. What is your invitation to break through walls? The second thing that Paul does that I find incredibly difficult is that in the midst of this moment of discouragement and this disappointing thing, and when he looks at this big giant system that's not what he wants it to be, he affirms the belovedness of everybody involved. I don't know how he does that but he does it. I think when he calls Philemon my dear brother, I think he means it. And when he calls Onesimus his, his heart, I think he means it. There's a, f- a funeral happening today uh, for a writer that I love uh, who was only 37. Uh, her name is Rachel Held Evans, and she got a, a crazy virus and responded badly to antibiotics, and um, so her family's burying her today. And She's just one of my favorite people to read and to just pay attention to. And she was one of the early blog voices, like when blogging was a thing. And what she did for her whole career was to engage in really difficult conversations about faith. And she was a public learner, which means that some of her answers to hard questions changed over the course of her career. And um, she was a person who said out loud, some of the things I was taught about being a Christian as a kid, I don't know what to make of as an adult. And uh, because she asked these hard questions, because she kind of challenged the authorities that she saw in the church around her in Tennessee and in America and in the world, uh, she would catch a lot of vitriol because the internet is a wild jungle that doesn't make us our best selves. And so a lot of times she would, she'd find herself uh, the subject of, of hate and she would get called less than her name, if you know what I mean. And uh, a lot of times she, in her early career, she wrote a ton about women in the church and and challenged this idea that only men could kind of teach people about God. Um, And so she took a lot of hate and a lot of uh, vitriol for that. And uh, she was interviewed once, you know, how do you handle that? Like, how do you deal um, with just being the subject of so many people's anger? And uh, she said, and when people would send her letters or tweet at her, somebody would be really mad at her, write an article about her, uh, she would imagine them, often men, she would imagine them playing on the floor with their kids. And she said that every time she did that, it would, they would become human to her. And she would find her way to call them beloved, uh, even as they called her something very different. And as we talk about this, being online, the third thing that Paul does here, and I think you've already seen it, he just, he chooses his words very carefully. Um, when, he, when he calls people by their name, he's very careful about calling them by the right name. And maybe that's because he doesn't have a phone in his pocket, right? He has to get the parchment. He has to get the ink. Uh, He has to, this is his one chance to write it right. Um, So he chooses his words carefully. This would be a good time for us to do that in the world. The fourth thing that I see in this letter that I hope I can do a little bit of is to practice courage. That when you see a world that is not what you want it to be, And when you know that you can't just say out loud, this should be different, 
when you know that these difficult conversations are going to have to happen slowly, carefully, and up close, the only thing we can do is decide to be brave. Philemon has a choice when this letter arrives. He can decide whether to listen or not. We don't know the ending to this story. We don't know what Philemon does with this. We don't know if he throws Onesimus out, cuts off all support to Paul. We don't know. We don't know if Paul makes that visit. We just don't know. He has a choice when difficult words show up on his doorstep, when something that challenges his way of life show up on his doorstep. He has a choice to be brave and listen or to send the truth away. He has a choice whether or not to refresh the heart of the beloved. Onesimus had a choice. He could have settled for a less than life. He could have settled for a life that was financially secure, that even if it was a part of a wicked system, kept food in his belly. When he met Paul in prison, and when he heard the story of Jesus, who lived and died and lived again, he could have been kind of mad at a God who put him in a place like this, who just kept putting him in chains. But he does the brave thing, and he believes in hope. Paul could have avoided the issue. He could have never sent this letter. He could have never said that wild thing he says in Galatians about how in Christ there is no longer male or female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. He could have never let his pen get that out of control. But I think that he looked down at the thing in his hand and he said, I have this one thing in my hand, what do I do with it? And I wonder if he looked down at that one thing that he had in his hand. And maybe he thought of a story where Jesus had one thing in his hand. Jesus is talking about a cup. There's a moment uh, the night that he's arrested where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays, this cup I'm holding, I would rather be holding anything else. And we don't know if he was holding a literal cup or if it was just Jesus as a constant poet, uh, even in the face of danger. So maybe he just looked down at his hands and he thought, this thing in my hands, this suffering, this pain, this march towards my certain death, these wounds that I know are coming for me, I would rather be holding anything than this thing. And then Jesus decides to bring the pain up close, to drink the cup, to go into the grave hoping that there is a back door. And I don't know what you're holding Maybe you wish it was something completely different. I, I wish Dayton was not holding destruction. I wish people I loved right now were not holding disease. I wish we had better systems in place so that everybody had enough. I wish that we were all calling each other better names. And every day I look around, and I'm sure you do too, the world is something less than. And I just wish it could be more than. And the only thing I know to do 
is to love bravely and to get up close and to use our words carefully and to hope that there's light on the other side and to hope that if we will drink what is in front of us, we will know resurrection power. Let's pray. God, we pray for our neighbors. Some of us, even right now, are thinking of the names of people we know who lost their photo albums, the walls that kept them safe, the roof over their head, who even right now don't know if they'll have enough to eat tomorrow. God, we wish we weren't holding this. But help us to hold it well. Help us to love up close. Help us to live up to our name. Help us in the midst of every kind of storm to live like we are yours. To live and love like we saw your son Live and love towards pain and towards freedom. God, even as we hold this bread and drink this cup, help us, God, to hold them, hold each other close. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.